Our Father, we come boldly but humbly into your presence because of who you are and, and because you've commanded us to come into your presence. And Lord, we do so because we know that we need to hear from you. Each and every day, we need, we need to hear the voice of God in our hearts, primarily, of course, through the Word. Father, I pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend, hearts to receive, that whatever it is you're saying to us individually today, you will, uh, we will be able to uh, understand and incorporate into our lives. Lord, I thank you for every life in this room today and for what you're doing in each one. And Lord, you've promised to be present with your people as we meet in your name. And so we trust as you work here this morning that it will be for the glory of your great name. And we pray that throughout our complex here this morning, you will be present working in each class, touching the lives of, uh, of people of every age in Sunday school and in the church services. And Father, throughout the city of Reading, we pray that the work of God will go forward and that lives will be changed. There will be many who will be won into your kingdom this day because of the work of your Spirit. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, as we look at the Word over these next few minutes, we pray that it will be burned deeply into our heart and we will live according to its directives. In Jesus' name, amen. In our study... We have been noting that Israel has passed through the nearly 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and they have conquered Transjordan and they are now on what is called in the scripture the plain of Moab, which is a portion of the Jordan Valley just to the north and slightly to the east of the head of the Dead Sea. And their presence there is viewed as a threat by Balak, the king of Moab. And he knew that he didn't have the resources to deal with Israel. And so he decides to send messengers to the most famous seer of that day, a man by the name of Balaam, way over in Mesopotamia, at least 500 miles away, possibly further, and, and to bring him clear across that portion of the Fertile Crescent and to ask him to curse this plague as he saw Israel stretched out on the plains of Moab there in their encampment. Balaam has been hired to do the job, and we've looked at the struggle that Balaam had with the initial encounter uh, with the messengers from Moab, and then the secondary encounter, and then the fact that he finally was given release to come. And as he responds to that release, we came to that humorous, rather humorous, although very serious, uh, encounter in the 22nd chapter of Numbers, beginning at verse 21. And I'd like to begin reading there today and read from verse 21 down through verse 35. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. 
And the angel of the Lord went a little further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. This is the third time. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have, you, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Notice, a counting donkey. <laughs> then Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the, donkey, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from, uh, from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely killed you just now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I shall tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. We'll stop there for the moment. This is a very mysterious thing to Balaam. Balaam was a witch doctor, a soothsayer, a seer, and he had many encounters with the occult before because he was an occultic practitioner. And so, as I mentioned to you last time, this whole idea about talking to a donkey didn't seem to be terribly foreign to him. I mean, you know, the donkey speaks to him and he talks right back to him with no apparent amazement or anything else. And this was something probably was not totally without precedent in his life before. But of course, always before, it's been a demonic, demonic presence, certainly. And to him, uh, what should have been, of course, a bit odd was the fact that it was God speaking through the donkey. But remember, Balaam has no concept of who God really is. As far as he knows, Yahweh of Israel is just like all the other gods of the other nations. Just a spirit that he has to deal with, he has to appease, he has to mollify, he has to try to buy off. But, of course, the whole encounter here, uh, through the 22nd chapter, the 23rd chapter, and the 24th chapter, is to help us to understand how this man came to know that this God was not like any other God he had ever encountered before, although it will not change his life. It will be a testimony in the pages of Scripture to the sovereignty of the God of Israel. Balaam received the shock of his life, of course, when his eyes were open and he saw the angel of the Lord standing there. Now we can tell that this is a theophany, that is, a manifestation of God, because in the passage we read in the 31st verse that when the angel of the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, he saw him standing there in the way. It says he bowed all the way to the ground. He prostrated himself. In Scripture, this is to worship. The Hebrew is to worship. And angels have always rejected worship. Wherever an actual angel, Gabriel, or whoever it might be, is mentioned, he rejects worship. This angel does not reject worship, which means it is a manifestation of God in angelic form. And of course, the wording in what the, the, uh, the proclamation which is made 
through the angel to Balaam is said in such a way to indicate that it came from the mouth of sovereign God himself. And so here we have this, this Satan-inspired soothsayer who is bowing on his face before God in awe and fear. Balaam was so fright frightened here that he admits he has sinned, whatever that means to him, and he offers to turn back. He says, if it's displeasing to you, I'll go the other way. Well, I mean, who wouldn't say that, standing in the face of uh, you know, God appearing in angelic form in an overwhelming way? I mean, we have to understand that as his eyes were open, he not only saw physically the angel of the Lord, but there was at least a glimpse spiritually here. And, and we have to try to realize that there's not just the physical encounter, there is an emotional, spiritual presence of God here, which is overwhelming this man. It's more than five senses involved here as he encounters the angel of the Lord. Once Balaam admits his motives are wrong, God allows him to continue on his journey. Now, you remember last time in, at the end of the passage before, God had said to Balaam, okay, you can go. And then the next verse, it says God stands in his way and, and blocks him from going. He's angry with his going. When we, what was the point here? Well, the point was that he was to go in the power of, of I mean, to go, and, and, but he was told that he was to give only the message that God gave him to give. And what we interpret here as, that is that as he went, he said in his mind, well, when I get there, hopefully things will be different, and I'll say what I want to say, and I'll do what I want to do. So that's why God opposed him here, because in his spirit, he was seeking to do the opposite of what God had said would happen. There are two important points, I think, to note here at this juncture. First of all, a person, whoever that person may be, Balaam or anyone else in the history of the world, can be faced with the reality of who God is, can be faced with the reality of his sin, and may even acknowledge his sin as this man has done, and yet remain spiritually untransformed. Balaam's actions prove, as we go on in the next passages, prove that although he was forced to acknowledge God and to admit his sin, he did not do so by his own volition. It was not because he said, oh yes, I want to submit to God and confess my sin. It was not that. He was forced to do it by overwhelming spiritual power. He had no choice. It's like what will happen in the end. Satan will resist the activities of God until the end, but he will be forced to bow to overwhelming power as God will cast him into outer darkness, into the lake of fire forever. And the scripture tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, the vast majority who have died in their sin will do it because they have no choice but to bow before sovereign majesty. Secondly, we, I think we can grasp from this passage that only God can open spiritually blind eyes. You can talk until you're blue in the face to someone about what it means to know God, and if God doesn't open their eyes, it's like water off the duck, the proverbial duck's back. All who have never been born again by the Spirit of God are spiritually blind, period. There is no in-between place. You either have had your eyes open to see and acknowledge the truth, or you're blind. There's no halfway position. You know, it's not as if Hindus and Buddhists and, and Muslims have kind of a little bit of spiritual insight, but not the full thing. They may understand the realities of the spirit realm, but they don't understand who God is. And they have never come face to face 
with their need to submit to him. Those who are unborn again cannot grasp the truth. Paul says that to them the preaching of the gospel is foolishness. That's why people laugh often at your evangelical, literal Bible-believing position. Now, we're considered to be bigots. We're considered to be the, the dangerous right, you know, you know in the religious right in, in this country. And I, I don't know if you were listening to the news the other night, but they were reporting on Billy Graham's first meeting down in San Jose, and they said that he is still being considered by many to, to not be what they want because he still will not admit that so homosexuality is acceptable. I thought, yeah, right, just because he comes to the Bay Area, suddenly he's going to change his tune. Uh -huh. God is immutable. His word is immutable. And we as practitioners of the word must remain immutable in our faith concerning what God has said. And we can't just warm up to the uh, culture which is what everybody thinks we ought to be doing. I know we live in a pluralistic society, so we should be pluralistic. If that's what they want to believe, hey, that's okay. Bless them in their belief. We can't bless them in their belief. Um, just as Balaam cannot curse Israel, we cannot bless those who are, who are cursed in that sense. Balaam's eyes were open just a fraction, just enough so he could see God in angelic form but he would not receive the truth into his heart. And so he will remain to his death, as far as we know anyway, in pagan darkness. And that's important to remember because we're going to be reading some passages as we get into the next chapters that sound like this man must be a true believer because he is quoting scripture. Well, as you know, when Jesus encountered Satan in the wilderness, <laughs> Satan quoted scripture to him. Also, that, of course, didn't mean he was a Bible-believing uh, Christian, obviously. If we are true believers, if we have been born again, our eyes have been spiritually open. And as a result, we should be able to recognize spiritual warfare when we confront it. Now, Balaam knows this is spiritual warfare because he's a spiritist. And even Balak knows this because he worships his pagan gods too. Uh, they were far, far more um, cognizant of the existence of the spiritual realm than we tend to be in our Western society with its Greco-Roman thought patterns. And, you know, many of the Greek philosophers, if you read them, they did not believe in the supernatural at all. To them, it was all tongue-in-cheek to believe in Zeus and, and, and Hera and Ares and Aphrodite and all these gods and goddesses. In fact, Hesiod made up the whole history of them by himself. You know, sat down one day, well, this is the, how did gods come about? No, 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 And he writes his Theogony, you know. This is long after they already were believing in these gods. How do you, how do you know all that? We just invented it. But we who are believers, our eyes are open so that we can distinguish between truth and error. And it's very important that we keep those spiritual eyes open because if we fail in the practice of the discipline of prayer, and if we fail in the consistent study of Scripture, we will develop spiritual cataracts. We will. We will get to be to that place, which you probably know, people like that, who have been Christians for many, many years, but, you know, they don't really believe God is doing much, and they don't believe that Satan is really active, or maybe they don't even believe there is a Satan, and they have no con concept at all of spiritual warfare. They think, you know, if they have a run-in with their boss at work, it's just a run-in with their boss at work. It's a personality conflict. They don't know that there is a spiritual warfare going on there. Because Satan is out to destroy the church of God if he can. And he will do it person by person. 
And he almost always tries to come at us in our weakest place. He knows where the chinks are in our armor. And he will come at us in those areas. And that's why the discipline of prayer and the consistent study of the Word is so critical to us. It not only enables us to put on the armor of God, but it enables us to see warfare. Have you ever thought about what it must have been like for the medieval knights out there in shining armor trying to do battle looking through these little slits? <laughs> you know, no wonder they got hit from, they got blindsided. It's pretty easy to blindside somebody who can only see through a tiny little slit like this, you know. And more than one of them got his head split wide open simply because he didn't see the guy coming at him from the other side. We have to have that visor lifted so we can see. And we know the enemy is coming in trying to blindside us. And he'll try to blindside us even through other Christians. Other Christians who are not walking with God as they should. That's why gossip is, is such a, a vile thing as it creeps into the church. And, and churches, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to, to let that begin to fester within a body of believers because sometimes we call these things prayer requests. You know, and, and it becomes more than that as, as it, it's conflated. And so we need to really, really be careful. Well, let's, let's move on here with uh, Balaam's little encounter, beginning at verse 36. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in, his, in my mouth, that I shall speak. And Balaam went to Balak, with, with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzza. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, and he saw from the mountain there a portion of the people. To use the modern vernacular, Balak was ticked at Balaam's delay. He had sent this first group of messengers all the way over there, 500 miles, you know, a month's worth of journeying, to get him to come and offered him all this reward and basically he told him, no, I can't come. Well, Balak doesn't give up, so he gets a bigger delegation. He offers him virtually a, a carte blanche and he, and he says, come. So Balaam finally condescends to come, but because God gives him leave to come. And uh, so Balak is really uh, not understanding any of these things. In fact, you'll discover as you read through this passage that Balak has no clue what's really going on here. He is one, he is single-minded. Curse Israel, curse Israel, curse Israel. Whatever I got to do, curse Israel. I mean, the guy is totally blind, blinder than Balaam. And so he chastises him for not coming sooner. Why didn't you get here sooner? Now, it's not that anything happened to Balak's kingdom in the meantime. I mean, Israel's just sitting camp down there on the plain. And nothing's happening. They haven't sent any forays up into uh, Balak's territory. They are really only a potential threat. They're not a real threat in the sense of anything happening. So, you know, Balak is just really disturbed inside himself. But you know, what he is saying is, it isn't because there was any threat. If you'd have been here sooner, you know, you could have kept them from doing this. No, it's because he's king. I'm a king, and I told you to come. 
you know. And, and he says, I gave you this big reward. I've offered you this huge reward. The least you could do is put this on the top of your list of priorities to come. I mean, anybody else giving you a better deal? He says, did I not urgently call you? He said, am I unable to honor you? You know, as if, you know, I'm just some little petty chieftain over here and can't do anything significant for you at all. I mean, I offered you my palace full of gold and silver, if necessary. Well, Balak is very anxious in this whole matter. So much so, he does something very unkinglike. He doesn't wait for Balaam to come to him all the way. He goes kitty corner, clear across his kingdom, way up to the far northeast border. It tells you in the passage he went way up to the upper reaches of the Arnon, which was his, the northern border of his kingdom, way up over into the east so that he could meet Balaam the instant Balaam crossed the border into Moab. I mean, that's how anxious this guy is. Most kings would sit in their palace and say, when's this guy going to get here, you know? But this guy is um, showing some rather unkingly attributes here in uh, going over to seek him out. Actually, he's at the farthest corner away from Israel uh, at this moment, at least on the north end of his country. What's interesting about this is Balaam is not shook by Balak's rebuke. I mean, it's kind of like, eh. Because he very wryly responds to him. He says, well, I'm here. In effect, he was saying, though, a lot of good it's going to do because I can't speak anything except what God, the God of Israel, gives me leave to say. That does not sink into Balak at all. He doesn't get the point. It's totally lost on him. He, he ignores his words. And he says, okay, you're here. Let's go. We got to go clear across the top of the country or over to the other side so we can look down over Israel and I want you there so that we can offer sacrifices and curse Israel. I mean, that's what I'm paying you to do. So he hurries him across the king to the northwest corner to a place which the scripture calls Kiriath Huzath which literally means city of streets. Most cities have streets, so it's, uh, you know, obviously a place that they have no idea where it was. I mean, they know the general location, but they have not been able to uncover a particular town or village which they can say is this site uh, at this time. There Balak sacrifices to his gods. <clears throat> he wants Balaam to be able to do his thing effectively, so he clears the way by sacrificing to his gods. After all, you have to remember that the people who lived in this part of the world at this time believed what many pagans have believed down through the course of history right into the modern day, and that is that gods are territorial. And therefore, he wants to make sure that he has appeased the gods of Moab so that they're in full cooperation with what Balaam is going to do, because Balaam, of course, is not from Moab. He is from Mesopotamia. And whatever baggage he brings with him, that's his problem. But I'm going to clear up the atmosphere here so that uh, he can do his thing here for me. And then the scripture here tells us that the following day, you know, he's gotten him across the north part of the country there, and he's gone to this little town, and he's done his little sacrifice thing. The very next day it says that he took Balaam to the top of Bamoth Baal, or Baal, which literally means the high place of Baal. And it was one of the many hill, hilltops there that were on the top of the escarpment looking down into the, the graben there, the downfaulted area of the Jordan Valley. And it's a rather precipitous drop. If you've ever been over there, you, you notice that as you look across the Jordan Valley, 
from the Israeli side, it just kind of rises very quickly to the highlands of Gilead. It's a very rapid drop off there. And if you've uh, done as we have and taken the bus up there, you kind of snake your way around to get it up, you know, the, that escarpment to the top, <clears throat> to the plains of the plateau of Gilead at the top. And so there he is. He brings him to a place. He says, now you can see Israel down there. They're encamped before you by tribes. You can see them, two million of them down there. And I want you to curse them. That's what I'm paying you to do. Curse those people. Well, let's look at the next chapter. This is one of the most awesome, I don't use that word a lot, but I think it's applicable when it comes to anything having to do with God Almighty and nothing else, really. Chapter 23, let's read the first three verses. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now, it needs to be noted here that wherever in the Old Testament you see the word Lord with a capital L like that, the literal Hebrew is Yahweh. So he is not saying here like I would say, Well, I'm going to go to my room and pray to the Lord. Because I am saying by that, to, to my God, the one I serve. He is not saying that. He's saying, I'm going to go over there and talk to Yahweh, just like Balak would say, I'm going over here to talk to, to you know, Chemosh or something like that. He's not using it in a personal sense for himself. He's using the name of Israel's God. Now, we don't know whether Bala, uh, Balaam is encouraged by Balak's faith that Balaam can actually do this that Balaam is really somebody worth bringing here because he could really do the job. I've brought you 500 miles, I'm going to pay you all this money, and I believe you can curse Israel. I mean, he's really putting his money where his mouth is. He believes in Balaam. Now, whether it's because of Balak's faith or because he's intimidated that his reputation will be destroyed here if he doesn't really do the job, plus the fact, of course, he really wants the money. What you discover about this whole story of Balaam is what Jesus said, that you cannot serve God and mammon. And this totally proves that. Because this man will have a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God on numerous occasions and will sell his soul to the devil. Well, Balaam launches into the appropriate preparations in his attempt to cast a spell. If you've got to cast a spell, you've got to get the spirits all ready here. And so he sets up seven altars, or has Balak set up seven altars with his, you know, Balak's got a bunch of his, his men around, and they set up these altars, and they bring these rams and these bulls to make the sacrifice. Now, what's interesting is, and is confusing to some, is in this verse, for verse 1, it says, build seven altars for me here, prepare seven bulls and seven rams. It sounds very biblical. Seven. Well, seven's the perfect number. Seven's the number of God. It's got to be right, you know. It's got to be what God is ordaining to be done. But there is absolutely no biblical record of God ever commanding multiple sacrifices on multiple altars simultaneously. That is a pagan practice. God will order sacrifices, maybe multiple sacrifices, on the altar, but not on multiple altars. This is a pagan formula.
inspired by the prince of lies and prince of darkness. And he's using the biblical number seven for a very per, uh, specific purpose. And that is to confuse the issue, to muddy the waters. Satan does that all the time. Why do you have in Egyptian mythology the concept of the death and resurrection of a god bringing life? Why do you find a trinity in, in Hinduism of, of supreme gods? They've got lots of other gods, but they have a supreme trinity. Why do you have these biblical parallels through the religions of the world? Satan is no fool. He knows how to convince people that this is true by giving him a modicum of truth. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and others are so convinced of what they're doing. Because they have a measure of truth, but it's mixed with a lie. And they don't see the lie. And that's what Satan is doing here. He's trying to make it look very biblical. Seven altars, seven rams, seven bulls. I mean, God wants bulls and rams offered on an altar. That's what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. But Satan is the great counterfeiter. Well, Balak makes the appropriate sacrifices. And Balaam said when it's all over, now you stand by these altars and by these sacrifices. The idea being that the gods will look down and say, oh, Balak is the one who made the sacrifices. Therefore, we need to pay attention to what Balak wants. And therefore, when Balaam seeks to accomplish his purpose, they will be, they'll be cooperative because they have seen all these wonderful sacrifices that Balak has made. Now, Balak should be a little bit worried here. When Balaam says um, in verse 3, uh, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. Now, Balak should have thought, I don't think that's what I'm paying you to do. To walk over there and perhaps, you know, you'll hear from God, and perhaps you can do what I... I'm paying you to curse these people. What's wrong with you? Just get to the business of cursing Israel. Not go and listen to their God and see if he says it's okay. Now, well, chances are the God of Israel isn't going to be too friendly to this idea. You see, because here are the gods of Moab and the God of Israel and the gods of Edom and the God of the Ammonites and so forth. They're all different gods and they all have strengths and they're territorial and we, you know, we're in Moab, so the Moabite God should overwhelm. I mean, they are encamped on territory that belong to Moab prior to their lo losing it to the Amorites. And, and so the whole idea here is that Israel should be overwhelmed because they're on, not on their God's territory. So anyway, Bala Balaam goes down from the hilltop. and If you can just picture this, he walks across a narrow saddle up to a barren hilltop a little bit of distance away. Bala could probably see him over there. He wanted to be alone so he could be sure of what God was saying to him. He wanted to do business with God. Verse 4. Now God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have set up, this is Balaam saying to God, I have set up seven altars, and I have altar offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. And of course he goes, ha. And then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. So he returned to him, and behold, he was standing beside the burnt offering, and he and all the leaders of Moab, they were doing what Balaam said. And he took up this discourse, and he said, from Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, as I look at him from the hills, behold a people who dwells apart, 
shall and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you've actually blessed them. And he answered and said, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Again, it can be very confusing here. We can say, Balaam is saying that he's speaking what the Lord has put in his mouth. This is true, but he's not saying it of his own volition. This is the fourth time we have record in Scripture of Balaam encountering Yahweh and hearing God speak to him. Now, you remember, God spoke to him the very first time when the messengers came and God said, no, you're not going. And so he told him he didn't go. Then he came back the next time and, and God said, well, if you, you'll, you can go, but you'll say only what I say you should say. And then, of course, the angel of the Lord and the donkey issue, and now on top of this hill. But you'll notice what Balaam does first. He points out to God, in case God didn't notice, that I have built seven altars over there and I have, I have offered seven bulls and seven rams. Now, you have to remember that these were not immensely rich people. A bull and a ram was worth a great deal of money in that society. This was a major sacrifice that had been made here. And he is hoping that such an elaborate offering will appease or at least impress Yahweh. Impress him with what? With Balaam's sincerity and his worthiness. This is a man worth listening to. He is sincere in his desire to carry out his business. And is this not so much like people who live in our world today and even throughout history? They hope that by their overt charity and their good deeds, that they will influence God to accept them, although they refuse to live the lifestyle which honors him or is in obedience to his word. They have never come to willing submission to God. They've never repented. They've never come to obedience, but they hope to buy God off by some issue of charity. It reminds me, the other night I just caught a clip at the end of a biography, and it was one of the hoodlums by the name of Dutch Schultz, who was shot down in uh, New Jersey back in the days of, uh, you know, when the mafia was make, kicking up uh, its issues very strongly. And this guy, in his process of dying, although he was born a Jew, asked to, be, to receive the last rites of the Catholic Church. And so a priest came to administer the last rites and to baptize him, you know, on, on all of this. You know, and people, Catholics, were outraged at this. They said, if a man like that makes it to heaven, who in the world will go to hell? And you think about that and you think, I mean, everybody is totally blind in the whole issue here. Obviously, Dutch Schultz wasn't going to heaven, you know, just because he went through a ritual. Balaam is not going to get the ear, ear of God to do what is right simply because he goes through a ritual. Here, let, let me read a couple of verses from the 21st uh, proverb. Proverb 21, verse 3. To do righteousness in, and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. You know, the issue of religion throughout history has been, quote, sacrifice. In fact, there have been whole um, groups within various denominations who have believed that by living an austere lifestyle, you know, sleeping on a bed of nails, as it were, 
uh, will somehow earn them favor in the eyes of God. That's what God is after. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. And in, in the 27th verse of that same proverb, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? I mean, that verse speaks exactly to what Balaam is doing here. He has made these sacrifices with evil intent, and that is to curse the very people who are blessed by God. Well, in response to Balaam's misguided attempts here to put God in his debt, look at all the sacrifices I have done for you. God commanded Balaam to go back to Balak and give him this message. And that's the verses we read. In fact, verse 8 of this, this passage in uh, Numbers 23, is, uh, it says, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? I mean, is that not an in-your-face Balak response from God? How can this man curse the people that I have blessed? Balak, this is what you want, but you're, you're knocking your head against a stone wall. Balak was not a happy camper, to use our modern parlance here. And he is smart enough to recognize that Balaam has not only not cursed Israel, he's blessed them. Balaam's not happy either, by the way. Balaam is not a happy man because he wants what Balak is offering him. He has the love of mammon. He wants this wealth. He wants this honor. But he cannot resist the word that God has put in his mouth. Read you a, let me just turn quickly to a verse in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 39 says, Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. <laughs> Balak, your gods don't exist. Chemosh, pure, you name them, they cannot stand before the word of the sovereign God. Balak is a hard-headed man, though. He's frustrated, but he is not about to give up. And so Balak took Balaam to yet another location and thought, well, if we go to another spot, maybe it'll work there. Territorial gods, you see. Maybe from another hill we'll have better luck. So let's go to this other hill and, and let's, let's try the process there. Verse 13 of uh, Numbers 23. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them, meaning the outer edges of the Israel encampment, and will not see all of them. I guess his idea was that if you see all of Israel, that's too much spiritual power emanating up here, but if you just see a part of them, maybe that'll cut off some of that influence of Yahweh, and, and curse them for me from there. So he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram in each altar. Then he said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I myself meet the Lord yonder. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. He came to him, and behold, he was standing beside the burnt offering, and the leaders of Moab with him. I mean, this is deja vu. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. 
Give ear to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune, or literally iniquity, in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like an ox, of the, like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people arises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts, it lifts itself. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, whatever the Lord speaks to me, I must do. If anybody was to encounter repeated frustration to the ultimate level, it's Balak. Balak is absolutely committed to the cursing of Israel. I mean, he is becoming at least paranoid, if not worse, over this whole thing. And you know what's interesting is probably out of ignorance, he takes, look at this, he takes Balaam to the top of the very mountain from which God had just recently taken Israel to show them the promised land. <laughs> and he wants Balaam to curse Israel from that mountain. Well, they build the altars again, sacrifice the bulls and the rams again. And then speaking through Balaam, God rebukes Balak yet again. And he denies any possibility of cursing Israel. So frustrated is Balak that he says to Balaam in effect that if you can't curse them, shut up. <laughs> At least refrain from blessing them. You know, if you can't do what I've asked you to do, don't go to the other side. But of course, can you see the heart of Balaam? Balaam is, is an instrument of Satan and he is frustrated to hear because he wants to do what Balaam has commanded him or, asked, or has paid him to do, but he can't do it every time he opens his mouth, out comes the word of the Lord. I guess we should have a little sympathy for, for this poor man, Balaam. I don't know. But if any man had opportunity to know the living God, he had that opportunity. <coughs> because God actually spoke through his mouth. God appeared to him in a vision. God spoke to him. He heard him audibly with his ears. And yet he continues to try to do the job for which he has been hired. He wants the power, the prestige, and the wealth. And he'll get it at any cost, even if it means selling his soul, which is, of course, what he does. Well, let's just finish the chapter. Uh, there's just a few more verses here. Then, verse 27, Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to yet another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor. I mean, this is the ultimate, which overlooks the wasteland, literally Jeshimon. And Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. 
And Balak did just as Balaam had said and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Bamoth Baal, the high place of Baal, Pisgah, Nebo, and Peor were apparently all peaks along the top of this escarpment from which you could see at least a portion of the Israelite camp down there in the Jordan Valley. Balaam was not able to curse Israel from Bamoth Baal. He wasn't able to curse Israel from Pisgah. So now Balak has the hope that he'll be able to do it here from Peor because Peor is named for the Moabite version of Baal. And certainly this peak with that name, not only named for the god, was probably the special, most important worshiping center for Peor. And so let's go to the very worship center of Peor, and by the power of Peor, maybe Yahweh will be forced to relent. But if I were Balak, I'd be counting the cost here. I have now built 21 altars. <laughs> I have now sacrificed 21 bulls and 21 rams. This is getting to be an expensive deal here, even if I don't pay this man Balaam, which is obviously what you know, will be the result if he doesn't get some results here. Well, this brings us to chapter 24. I think that's probably a good place to stop and uh, we'll go into this chapter because in chapter 24, there's some really powerful things that come out of the mouth of this man, Balaam, here uh, about God. And uh, that will be the focus of our study next week.